This is part four of the book, I Am Gravity, Irrepressible Curiosity. Chapter two, Curiosity. If there were a theme for curiosity, especially chapter two, I think it would be the power of inexperience in a world that craves expertise. And as with every chapter, it assumes you've read or at least listened to the intro. And although the chapters of each element are mostly independent of each other, it does help a little if you've covered the first chapter of part four called The Blessings of Bewilderment. Straight out of college with his PhD, on his first project, with his first team, at his first job that just happened to be a Fortune 100 aerospace company, John was in every way possible new. And that was his only advantage. So to learn the ropes, the company placed John on a team trying to fix a major problem with a satellite already in orbit. And the satellite cost $1.2 billion to make and $200 million to launch. So bringing it back to Earth and sending it up again would cost a few hundred million dollars. The engineers, all experienced, all with the company for at least a decade, had worked on a fix for weeks. And when John arrived, they were still at square one. After a few days of listening and asking few, uh, very few questions, John couldn't sit on the sidelines any longer. So he spoke up. Maybe they were thinking about the problem all wrong. The team courteously listened and then ignored him. On the face of it, square one seems the perfect place for curiosity to thrive. And it is, sometimes. But the pressure to do something fast and right weighs so heavily on the souls of the people inside the square that skipping along the surface of curiosity substitutes for diving. John decided to dive. Tenaciously curious, John experimented, talked to engineers one by one, dug into the details, and fine-tuned his ideas. Armed with a proposed solution, John entered the next big meeting, shared his ideas, and got a response. Highly improbable. It won't work. One engineer told John to ease into the culture before debuting rookie solutions to complicated problems. Whatever John was pitching, the straight-edged puzzle people weren't buying. And the work of a 1950s sociologist gives us a little bit of a window into why. Sociologist Everett Rogers developed an adoption curve of new ideas that's used in everything from technology to farming. And the phrase early adopter comes from his theory. The adoption curve spans from innovators and early adopters, which are about 16%, who are open to new thinking or trying something new, initial flaws and all, to the laggards, who are about 16%, who adopt an idea only when everyone else is using it and they can no longer avoid adoption without complete withdrawal from civilization. No surprise that 84% of adopters from early majority to the laggards lean toward the less open, incurious, secure side of the curve. Certainty 
is a security wall to keep new away. Throughout the history of scientific thought, wrote the late Stephen R. Covey, most laymen have been so anxious for certainty and have had such a low tolerance for ambiguity and change that they have been eager to say that a theory is a fact. The danger of quick resistance to new thinking is that the resistance may sound intelligent, and maybe it is, but it comes too early to be constructive. All it does is keep new ideas and new people cornered. In the face of certainty and resistance, or when you're under pressure to fit in and say nothing, curious human beings, the perceptive ones, have to listen to opponents, which is not our first instinct, especially if we're in a clique, argue for and against our own ideas so that others are not afraid to speak, inspire provocative questions, switch perspectives, walk away from the tide of opinion, resist rigidity, cut to the chase, ask questions that seem obvious but are not, be fascinated by views outside our own little private universe, not just tolerate them or pretend to pay attention, lean on our tribes and teams for camaraderie, but not as a crutch, make the uncomfortable comfortable, and the comfortable uncomfortable, and spark the incurious to be curious. It's a long list, and John leaned on all of it to start a right-to-left migration to his idea. Finally, one senior engineer, Kim, looked more closely at John's concept. Maybe his second look was sincere or a covert tactic to shut John up. Either way, Kim gave John one-on-one -on -one time to explain his solution again. In the next meeting, Kim gave John the floor. John plunged into the details. He exposed and examined every angle of the problem. It would cost $50 million to fix, not a few hundred million. They wouldn't have to bring the satellite back or launch a new one. And John's idea won. It saved the satellite and a big stack of cash for the company, not to mention downtime for the government agency relying on the satellite for national defense. The engineers asked questions during the project, but questions do not always convey interest. Curiosity was gridlocked by the very coveted thing every engineer and rocket scientist in every meeting had, experience and expertise. John wanted the truth. Everyone else wanted to be right. That doesn't mean we ignore expertise, but we can't worship it either. Breaking the hypnotic habit of idolizing expertise begins with an advantage psychologist Paul Torrance discovered 30 years before John was even born. A 10-second trip to Wikipedia details the credentials of Torrance, a Georgia farm boy who became a modern pioneer in creative psychology. Just listen to what he produced in his lifetime. 1,771 publications, 88 books, 256 parts of books, 408 journal articles, 538 reports, manuals, and tests, 162 journal and magazine articles, 
355 conference papers, and 64 forwards or prefaces. As part of his prolific output, Torrance conducted a series of experiments in the 1950s that upended how we think about intelligence. One of his experiments was called the Ask and Guess Test. He would hand a young student a picture, say a mother goose print, and then ask them to explain what they knew for sure was happening in the picture. Then Torrance asked students to write all the questions they would need answered to know for sure that what they saw happening in the picture was in fact true. And Torrance didn't allow easy questions. For example, who's holding the book? Well, the goose. That's obvious. Torrance tested the curiosity past the page. And then after five minutes of searching for plain facts, students imagined as many causes of the action in the picture as they could. Things just before the event in the picture took place or things from a long, long time ago that caused it to happen. And the goal was to make as many guesses as possible. And then after another five minutes, it was time for the final task, guessing consequences. Students listed as many possibilities as they could for what might happen as a result of what was taking place in the picture. The guesses could predict what happened right after the event or far off into the future. Torrance was testing children's curiosity to dig for creative causes, consequences, and context. At every step, his instructions came with an unusual reminder. Don't be afraid to guess. Torrance and psychologist Garnet Miller tracked the children they tested into adulthood, recording measures of creative success. For example, patents, businesses started, research papers published, books written, art exhibitions, software programs, music compositions, leadership positions, buildings designed, radio shows, movies made. Lifetime creative achievement was more than three times stronger among the children with higher creative IQ than conventional IQ. And as you would expect, there was a positive correlation between conventional IQ on multiple choice tests and memory. But when productive thinking, creative applications, evaluation and judgment, for example, testing hypotheses and decision-making, were the requirement of the achievement, the creative quotient flipped performance in the opposite direction. So for Torrance's three Xers, context was and is everything. Now, you might assume that Torrance's definition of curiosity was a mid-century version of a modern freewheeling brainstorming session. But from his paper titled Scientific Views of Curiosity and Factors Affecting Its Growth, Torrance applied a much more rigorous definition than the typical business version. The process of becoming sensitive to problems, deficiencies, gaps in knowledge, missing elements, disharmonies, and so on. Identifying the difficulty, searching for solutions, make guesses, or formulating hypotheses about the deficiencies, testing and retesting these hypotheses. The corporate twin of Torrance's discoveries is a century of progress in process. 
from W. Edwards Deming's work on quality management to Motorola's Bill Smith and Six Sigma to design thinking from, among others, Stanford's David Kelly, who founded IDEO, one of history's really great design firms. But what is a clean, crisp, tidy process on paper is not as elegant socially or emotionally. One high-tech leader in an interview confided to us, everyone knows the design boxes to check. You can't turn a corner in our company without running into a black belt of something. We have a process and flowchart for everything. It's the white spaces between the boxes, between the humans, that makes the whole process come alive. The human-centered white spaces of scientific methods are filled with people who are a perplexing, sophisticated mix of subatomic, psychological particles that act and react in seen and unseen, predictable and unpredictable ways, whether you see them that way or not. And that blend is both complicated and cool. And your job as a scientist, by title or not, is to uncover the unveiled, even unsympathetic truth with social acuity and emotional sensibilities that set ideas people, and processes free, squinting to see what's socially or emotionally invisible to the casual eye or ear is where the truth hides. And the squinting starts with a glimpse and then a gaze into the most elemental particle of communication, a single word. 